Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, let's go in our Bibles to um, 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22. And uh, I had as an opening statement for this that if you've ever wondered how to live well, but it occurs to me that a lot of people in today's world aren't asking that question anymore. How do I live well? We just kind of let life come to us. And I hope uh, as a Christian you're intentionally deciding... um, how to live the life God wants for you rather than just let life come to you. And sometimes people take the approach like, let's just see what happens. And why not take up the call of God and his purpose? I know there's a sovereignty to what God is doing, and and some of that comes to us, and we can't control everything that comes down the pike in life. But do you know that the Bible prescribes ways to live? And I assume that because you're here on Wednesday night, when you could be at home enjoying the rain, that... (laughs) That uh, you want to you want to look at God's word and ask the question, how do we live well? And uh, I hope that's your aim. If it's not, uh, let it be. Let it be your aim. Uh, so if you have wondered how to live life well, I think David tells us that it comes from faith and obedience. And we're going to look at Second Samuel twenty-two. It's a little bit of a step back from the counting of the fighting men, but uh, the way that I've chose to do this study. Um, of the life of David is to deal with different themes through his life. And tonight I want to talk about David, a faithful servant, one who who followed after God and uh, whom God made successful in life because uh, he was obedient to him. And so from from the road ahead, uh, we get... Uh, we get wisdom from David because he's he's already been ahead of us. You know, when we, we read Hebrews 11, what's, what's in Hebrews 11? Help me describe that. What is it? It's the hall of faith. And and what we get to in chapter 12, because there's this real unfortunate chapter break there, isn't there? Because it says in chapter 12, verse 1, seeing that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, it's pointing us back to chapter 11 and helping us to know that we're part of the same legacy, that those who've gone before us are pioneers. They've they've carved a way out, and we can look to their lives as examples. And it shows us the life of faith. And and so uh, I don't remember it mentioning in Hebrews uh, 11 David by name, but I do know that his example is there and what he represents. And, and I can tell you that we can gain wisdom from looking uh, at those who've already been further down the road than we are. And so from down the road or the road ahead, we get wisdom from David, wisdom which points back to the middle and the early years of his life, and it tells us uh, how things are done right. And if we want to look at that and we want to gain wisdom, we, we look at people like David and gain that. And, and so let's take a look at Psalm 22. This is really a tribute to the strength of his life. What is the strength of David's life? When he got in trouble a little bit later on, uh, one of the reasons he got in trouble is because by his actions, he's saying something by counting the fighting men. What was he What was he kind of implying by that, even though I don't know that that was at the core of what he would say? When he counted the fighting men, do you remember? I don't, I don't need God. We've got a strong, I know the technique. 
we've got sufficient power to be strong as an army, as a nation, and we really don't need God anymore. I wonder if uh, today in our, our nation we've kind of gotten that way, that we got advanced technology and we've got all the know-how and, and we've gotten to this place perhaps where we just we feel, people feel, not, not us because once again we're here on a rainy Wednesday night, but uh, there are people out there that aren't. Um, and they're thinking everything's okay, and I'm going to be okay because we kind of know how to do all of this. But as you look at David's life, you see that he realizes that the real strength of his life is from the Lord. And so this psalm is the accumulation of his experience. Uh, in it, we're looking through his eyes at how he sees his life, and he looks back from those final steps of his earthly walk with God. And David, uh, as we read this psalm, now aged... Um, he can see that everything good that he has comes from the strength of God. And that's really important to help us to know how to live. If ever in this psalm he seems to be self-congratulatory, it's always a way of bringing the attention back to God. Okay, So let's read. And this is 51 verses. So if you want to help me out, raise a hand, and we'll portion this out a little bit. Who'd like to read? All right. Uriah and Josh, and I think I saw Dean. So... Um, all right, I'm going to start with verse one, and I'll read through. Um, I'll read through verse. Oh, let's go. I'll go through verse nine, and then let's just go Uriah, and then Josh, and then uh, we'll go to Dean, and I'll kind of tell you when to stop. All right, David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies. And from the hand of Saul, he said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent people, you save me. I called to the Lord, who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. And the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, we heard, he heard my voice. He, and my cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming the fire that came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. And is that verse 9? All right, go ahead and read uh, Uriah verse 10 through, uh, go to verse 20. Okay. Second Samuel 22. Psalm 20. Did I say Psalm 22? I'm really sorry. Everybody's lost. Shall I read it again? <laughs> All right, thanks.
Okay, stop there if you would, and then Josh, if you'll pick up and read through verse 40. Yeah, I'll just have Dean finish uh, finish the chapter there. Yeah, forty one is good. Yep. Thank you. All right. Um, where you have cringed, I have the cower before you. So I think it has something to do with coming and recognizing the power that God has granted David. Let me suggest an outline to us. This isn't the outline I'm going to um, follow exactly, but I think if you want to outline this chapter, a great way to do that is in verses 2 and 3. Verse 1 is kind of the introduction. It tells us a little bit of context. It may even tell us when David wrote the psalm, like directly when he wrote it, but it may just be a reflection upon the circumstances for which the psalm was written, but uh, that would be verse 1. Verse 2 and 3, God's saving protection, okay? That God is a uh, one who saves. He mentions things like his stronghold, he's my rock, uh, things that you would, you would stand behind or stand upon for safety. So that's verses 2 and 3. Verses 4 through 30, lots, lots more of these aren't even in terms of the quantity, but verses 4 through 30 is God's saving power. Uh, and in that category, we see in verses, 
4 through 6 that David was surrounded by defeat, uh, and he called out to the Lord in verses 7 through 16, and the Lord responded to his prayer. In verse 17 through 20, uh, he reflects upon personal salvation, how God rescued him. In verses 21 through 30, an interesting section we'll talk about uh, in a little more detail, blessings of obedience. And then in uh, verse 31 through 50, God's saving presence. So we have God's uh, saving protection, God's saving power, and God's saving presence in verses 31 through 51. In verse 31 through 37, we see the sufficiency that there is in God. We don't, we don't need another. We've got the God who is able to protect us and give us victory. In verse 38 through 46, he reflects upon victory in battle. And verse 47 through 51 uh, is praise for he is worthy of it. So this is the structure of the psalm as I see it, but I want to structure my thoughts tonight a little bit differently than this to try to take into account all of David's life and, and look at where he's coming from and why he's saying these things. And uh, if, just as a way of justifying that, I want you to know that if we, we went through this psalm, we would take about three classes to do it because it's that detailed. So uh, we're not going to do that for sake of brevity. That'll be another time. But uh, I wanted to work through it a little bit and deal with some of the major themes. And I think it would, it would take those three classes and it would take, away, take us away from the focus of our study. And, and so where I want to go with this is, first of all, to mention that this psalm is a monument to God. This is not just a reflection upon David's life, okay? Sometimes uh, when you say, would, you, would anybody like to give a testimony? Sometimes people talk about themselves, and they make it about them, and it's not about them. It's about God. We, we always, whenever we give a testimony, this is just like testimony 101, is it always needs to be God-centered, and, and not like 90% us and a little commercial for God at the end, but let's make it about the Lord and what he's done. There's reason to celebrate it's because of what he's done. This whole psalm is a monument to God. You'll hear David say things that sound a little bit self-congratulatory in the middle of this psalm as we, we work through it, but he's not congratulating himself. He's talking about who he has become in light of who God is. So that's important that we not hang our heads and, and we have to bear this false humility about things. If God's done something, let's boast about it. Okay? And it might come across to some as self-congratulatory. We don't want to be that. Um, it always comes back to him. But this is a, a monument to the Lord. And the reason I said psalm is because um, this psalm is also Psalm 18. Okay, If you, and if you didn't know that, it's, it's echoed in Psalm 18. There's some slight um, wordage changes that are there. But almost completely, this is Psalm 18. But this is, this is right near the end of David's life, and it seems as if um, the writer of 2 Samuel has placed this here as a reflection of David's worship late in life. So he's telling us something about how David responds to God late in life. I'd like you to notice how personal this is. I don't have the verses to this, but if you go back to verse um, 2, you should catch right up with some of these thoughts. Notice he says, my rock... My fortress, my deliverer, my shield, okay, uh, the horn of my salvation, and this is a metaphor that's kind of lost on us because we don't talk in terms like that anymore, but uh, a horn in biblical times, there's a couple ways this could be taken, but 
the the primary way this and this is probably the meaning of it is the horn was representative of the horn that was like on an ox that was its power. Okay, so when you're talking about the horn of salvation, if you want to substitute that metaphor for something that we would understand, he, he, the Lord is the strength of our salvation, the power of our salvation. And so that's the point that he's trying to make there. Uh, and it symbolizes victory. The horn symbolizes victory in battle. So there's a military element to this. Notice uh, the next one would be my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. And then in verse 7, you have Yahweh. It says Lord there. But when you see capital L-O-R-D, um, that, that's, if you were to read this in Hebrew, it would be Yahweh. That would be there. So Yahweh, my God. And the reason I am making, and I've said this over and over again, and so if it gets old hearing it, just uh, forgive me on that. But this is really important because we're talking about the personal name of God. Whereas God or Lord can be a title. Uh, when you hear Yahweh, you're getting the personal name. Okay, that's significant. Okay, same as Jesus is not just it's not just a title; it's a personal name. That's important. So, uh, it's important to relationship to know names, right? And so, in verse seven, he says Yahweh, and in the Hebrew parallelism, usually the next line that follows uh, is in some kind of synonymous parallel. So, when you see Yahweh and then my God in the next line, it, those two are equate equated with one another. Yahweh, my God. In verse twenty-two, Yahweh my God. Verse 19, Yahweh, my support. Verse 29 through 30, Yahweh, Yahweh, my God. Do you see, what's the common word that's in all of those? My, my. We might take this for granted because we've been around long enough to know that uh, what God is offering through Jesus, um, personal relationship with him, right? Don't get weirded out by that. He's inviting us in to relationship with himself, restored relationship. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And so the, the goal is relationship with God. Are you with me? Okay, so when he says, my God, this is personal. And it probably could be taken for granted. But when you compare this with most of the religions of the ancient world, you don't find many of them uh, using possessive language about their gods like this, okay? A lot of times it was the God, and you can sometimes hear people speaking in abstractions. You know, abstraction is something that creates distance, and like God is out there. We don't know what's out there. There's ultimate reality. Yes, God is the ultimate reality, but isn't he personal? Isn't he much more than that? Isn't he someone that we relate to? And if we have salvation, aren't we speaking of him in terms of my God and not just the God? That's what I'm talking about is there's something here that we want to mine out and understand. In the ancient world, uh, a lot of times people use their gods as manipulative ways of either avoiding catastrophe or getting what they wanted. Okay, So they use their gods rather than being in some kind of a relationship with them where, uh, and, and this is really powerful when you think about it, in the Old Testament, you'll see this kind of... Uh, you can see this in feudalism in um, the Middle Ages, this kind of suzerainty vassal. This is the, the great God and the people, okay? They had uh, lords who were protectors over lands and the people who worked the lands that were protected by the lords, okay? There's a similar thing that you see in the Old Testament where God is our God and we are his people. 
and we live in a covenant relationship with him where we know him and he knows us and he gives us uh, that covenant loyalty as we give covenant loyalty back to him. And so this personal thing is really important to how David understands his God and it's, it sets us apart in terms of um, the world's religions to know that we can know God personally. Okay, so the other ones are not like this. This, uh, this means for David, God is more than a hobby and more than an obligation and more than a charm. Okay, think about these categories, a hobby. When we concern ourselves with hobbies uh, is when nothing else of importance requires our attention, right? That's when we do our hobbies. So if nothing else is happening, then I'll go to church. Nothing else is happening that's fun or requires my attention. Then I'll serve God, but but not otherwise. Obligations, and sadly sometimes we allow this to happen, but obligations, um, we can give ourselves to them grudgingly, okay? And we can do that with the Lord too, sadly. But this is not David. And with charms, um, they require no relationship or attention at all except to have them in proximity. Hey, you know what a charm is? It's it's like when people think they need to wear their special socks for their team to win. Or uh, the, um, the, the Israelites at one time used the Ark of the Covenant like a charm. They tried to take it into battle thinking they were just going to get the victory because we got the box with us. God said, you're not going to use my presence that way. And he allowed them to get defeated big time. So he won't allow us to use him as a charm uh, in that way. The charms require nothing, but, but listen to the language of David. God is personal. He's my God, my fortress, my rock, my stronghold. It's personal. And this possessive language like this only comes from someone who is involved, who takes God seriously and serves him personally. God means so much to him, and the things all relate to him having found God relevant to everyday life, not just an accessory, you know, like a hobby or an obligation or some kind of charm that we would like to carry around to make life better. He's much more than that. He's at the center of who David is. And this song uh, that we just read, Second um, Samuel 22, this song we just read is being sung near the end of David's life. And what does that tell us about him? If, it's, if he's singing a worship song near the end of his life. Does that suggest anything? He still loves God. He hasn't grown tired of religion. He hasn't gotten worn out on it. He hasn't gotten jaded or cynical or distant. He's still worshiping. I don't know if you thought about the significance of that. Um, some people feel after a period of time... And this is a sad trend that's happening in the church now, that they feel that they've outgrown this. They've got to go and deconstruct their faith and figure out what it is they really believe. And a lot of people end up leaving the church in Christ altogether. That's sad. But this shows us in David that he's not allowed any of those things to happen to him. Despite all of his problems, David has not lost his sense of the presence and importance of God. And he's not grown jaded toward the Lord or toward the world, it seems. And he's not lost a handle on his victory either. And that's all really important. The first half of the psalm, verse 1 through 22. No, we're not in a psalm. Just This is a psalm, though, and it's a song. 
Uh, in the first half of the song, uh, he speaks to God, to God, in third person. Okay, he speaks to God in third person. I think that's kind of interesting, don't you? That he would speak in third person. Um, and, and this is interesting because we think about David. David may no longer be able to muster the physical energy and stamina needed to lead troops into battle, but he can still worship, and that's what he does. He can still worship, and his days of fighting might be behind him, but his days of singing still continue. And in this song, he sings about God, and he sings to God. Verse 1 says that David sang to the Lord the words of this song. So he's singing about God, but he's singing them to the Lord. Isn't that kind of strange? When you think about it, to tell God something about himself he already knows. But isn't that what prayer is kind of like? God, you are so faithful. You think he doesn't know that? <laughs> he knows better than anybody how faithful he is. But part of praise is recounting who God is to him and being grateful for it. And here's an, I brought this up a little bit Sunday. I wish I had more time to talk more about this. But do you know that even um, speaking in tongues is similar to this? Because in um, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, it says that anyone who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Okay, right? And then, did you know in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, it says, when they heard them, people from the different regions that were gathered for Pentecost, heard those speaking in tongues, they heard them um, declaring the wonders of God. Okay? Put those verses together. Declaring the wonders of God, speaking not to men, but to God. People overheard it, but I would suggest to you the primary purpose of speaking in tongues is speaking to God, and so therefore it can be worship, it can be prayer, and it can be proclamation if it's interpreted, right? Otherwise, the mind remains unfruitful in it. But I wanted to mention that. So it's not all that strange that David should be speaking about God in the third person. What does third person mean? No, no it's not that. Think about uh, the first person as the one speaking. The second person is the one you're speaking to, which also is God in this third person is the one you're speaking about, okay? So God is both the second person and the third person in this psalm. But he's speaking to, David is speaking to God in this. In verses 1 through 25, it's third person descriptions of what God is like. God, you are my God, you know, speaking about who he is. In the rest of the psalm, it's second person. Um, he speaks directly to him. I've said this before. I used to th- categorize worship songs into different categories. Those that were really good. Those that were not so good. Those that were really bad. There's still categories like that. But the songs that were upper echelon were those that we sang directly to God. That's what I thought. And those that you sing about God, they're still good, but they're inferior. But do you know that the Spirit inspired songs to, to be sung about God? And it seems to me that they're not in any way inferior because we can sing about God to God. That's something to meditate upon, but I think that's part of what this song is about, is that David is singing to the Lord. If we take verse 1 seriously, and we need to, he's singing to the Lord in this about the Lord. 
I'd like you to notice a, a, another main category here. Uh, if our first point is that this psalm is a monument to God, the second is that God has been good, and this he's worthy of a monumental psalm. Okay, God has been good. When you say has been, what tense are we using there? It's past tense, right? Okay, I don't know that Hebrew is as specific, neither Greek, specific in tenses as we are in English. We refer to past, present, and future, and they're usually pretty rigid categories tied to time. But, but I think there's something to be said here that David begins with the past. Uh, let's just take a look here, verses 4 through 25. Take a look at some of the verbs here. We'll just go through here a little bit. I called, past tense, right? Uh, I have been saved. That's uh, the verb saved with some helping verbs that are past tense. The waves of the earth swirled about me. That's a past uh, description of something. There, I can't go through all of these, but if you just run your eyes through here, you're going to see uh, you're going to see the letters ed on the end of words, and that that indicates past tense. Are you with me? Okay, so he's thinking back about what God has meant to him through his life as he sings this song. That's really important, more important than we may know. One of the things that caused us to be sentient, thinking creatures who can have experiences is that, in a sense, we carry all of our experiences with us into this moment. And that helps us with who we are. And God can redeem every single thing that's happened to us for good. Are you with me? That means that we can look back and we can say, like Romans eight twenty eight, you know, that all things have worked together. It's not just for the good of you, it's for the good of His purpose. That these things are working and God is able to work them out for a good, for His purpose in our lives. And so He's thinking back about the things that have happened to Him. And they're past tense things. He's reflecting, there's memory, and that memory helps us as people. If we don't have that, we we lose some sense of personhood if we don't have that kind of memory. It doesn't mean we're not people in the sight of God, but uh, part of our personality is lost without memory. Okay? Think about this here. Uh, looking back on David's life, some of the victories that he had. This uh, psalm is mostly military, uh, and it's in its musings, it's thinking about how God has given him military strength. Let's just go to the very beginning. Uh, David, when he goes to fight Goliath, recalls something. What did he? What does he recall? Killing, killing the lion and the bear. Right. The Lord who gave me victory over the lion and the bear will give me victory over this uncircumcised Philistine. <laughs> All right. And then he defeats Goliath. That's a victory. He posthumously circumcises 200 Philistines. I hope it was posthumously for their sakes um, so that he can win the, do- the hand of uh, Saul's daughter. He evades capture from Saul for the better part of a decade. He raids the Negev uh, dwellers in those cities that surround the Negev desert. He overtakes the Amalekites when they come and steal his uh, family and the family of his men. He overtakes the Amalekites. He survives a seven-year civil war with loyal to, loyal, loyalists to the house of Saul. Do you remember that? When David becomes king, uh, at first, at Hebron, he's not king over the whole nation. He's only king over Judah. And part of Saul's household goes to war with David. And for seven years that takes place. And at the end, he becomes king over all of Israel for another 33 years. 
He defeats the Philistines. That's probably repeated on repeated occasion. He subdues neighboring nations so that they have to pay tribute to him. He survives a populist coup that was led by his own son. And all of those things, God gave victory to David, right? And so these are the things. They have a military sense to them. And the reason I mention them is that most of the language in this psalm has to do with military victory. After all, the reign of David uh, seems to have been purposed by God, uh, one, to establish Israel in the land, because up to this point, they really haven't been established as a nation. Okay, Joshua got them in the land, but they live kind of as distant tribes, even at times warring tribes, where they were being oppressed by different enemies, and they never really had a national identity. Even under Saul, he, he quickly got distracted by his own kingdom. Okay? And so David comes along, and finally, the Bible says something about him. It says, uh, the Lord gave him victory from his enemies on every side. And that's a, that's a Hebrew way of saying that he had peace. He had established peace. He'd finally accomplished the victory that God had set him to do. And the second thing that God was doing in the reign of David, in the life of David, the purpose of David, was to establish a royal charter that would result in the Messiah and be for all time. We're going to talk about that next week. That one's real, really exciting. But when you think about it, what God was doing also in David was establishing the son of David, a lineage with which a son of David would always remain upon the throne. Okay, that's that's good news. So those are the things that he'd been doing in David. Um, It's not that... He mentions specific examples in this psalm. He doesn't. He just he talks about what God has done, what God meant to him during those times. And that seems evident enough. I think when he says, God is my rock, he probably has in mind a moment when, when God showed up in a big way and he needed protection. He may be able to think of specific events that are tied to that. Uh, let me give you an example from another, another scenario. Remember when Abraham went up to slay, uh, well, he went up to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. Remember that? And he comes up, and uh, Isaac says to him, uh, we've got everything, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. And they get up there, and he's getting ready to thrust down the knife, and there's a ram caught in the thicket. And do you remember what Abraham says about God? the name that he discovers in that moment? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. So that name would, from then on, come back in a very real experience in life. And probably you've had some moments like that where when you think of God as my Savior, you're thinking of how he saved you from sin, how he rescued you when you were under conviction and you cried out to him and he brought you into the family. So when David talks about these things, he may not mention specific examples But I imagine that standing behind these images, these pictures that are poetic in this song, there are are things that he's thinking of that relate to real-life experiences, just as it is true of us. And so um, he begins um, begins to talk about that. We find inspiration for praise ourselves when, when we start recalling what God has done, and I would just ask, when's the last time you spent devotion time just listing out the victories God's given you? What if, what if, uh, if you're getting 
like caught in a rut, let me suggest that you switch things up, maybe just for a day, maybe for a week, and spend some time reading your Bible. But what if instead of reading that devotional book, you just spent some time thinking about what all God's done in your life and listing those out? That'd be a great way to to shift things and to to make things take on a new perspective because without that, I think the habit of praise begins to diminish. We need to reflect on the victories of God. Your praise includes your past. It does. The second um, category here, if God has been good, the next thing that it kind of shifts to here in this psalm is that God is good. Okay, God has been good, yes. But is he changing? Have you found that so many things in life that were once great are not so good? I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I just lo- I loved candy so much. Give me any type of candy. There's some candies now that I can't stomach anymore because I've changed. My appetites have changed. My, my feel- There's some that I'm still a sucker for. You know what I mean? There are some things like that. But... Um, One thing you can count on is that God will not change. I'd like you to notice most of the verbs in verse 26 through 51 are present tense verbs. Notice that. What were the ones before? They're past tense, right? They were past tense. And now verses uh, 26 through 51, they're present tense verbs. Let's just look at a few of those. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. That's not a great example. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I'm not guilty. This is present tense. Uh, I've not turned away. Uh, to the faithful, verse 26, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. You save, not past tense, present. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty. That's a, that's a statement in the present too, to bring them low. You, Lord, are my, are. There's the present tense helping verb, are. You are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light. You get the gist, right? This, all of these are now present tense. And he's thinking in terms of not just what God was to him, but now uh, this consistency with what God is to him. And that is really important, too, that we understand that with the changing of all things, God does not change. It might be worth uh, noting that uh, it brings the song that he's singing into this moment. What was true was good, but it's not the good times song of yesterday that laments today. And often as life moves um, forward into twilight, there can be this tendency to look back on life as if it were in the past, or like our best days are behind us. And that's just not a biblical view in my estimation. All God's blessings were in our youth, and and there can be nothing to look forward to today. I don't think that's a biblical view. Hebrews 11, 21, do you remember what it says about Jacob? It doesn't say a lot about Jacob. It says something about Abraham, says something about Sarah, and uh, and something about Isaac, and then it comes to Jacob, and it says, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed each of his sons, and he worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. He worshipped. You can you can feel you can see the effects of age settling in on him. He was he was dying. He's leaning on his staff. He doesn't have the strength he once had, but he worshipped. I 
like his perspective on God hasn't changed. In fact, if you look at Jacob's life, the thing that you notice through all the tragedy and difficulty lost Rachel seems that when she was young and he got his son taken away from him for many years and his other sons uh, were such tricksters that they allowed the deception to go on for years and years. And tell me he wasn't hurt by all that. I remember even when Rachel died, uh, he wanted, she wanted to name the son Ben-Oni, son of my suffering. And uh, he said, no, he's going to be the son of my strength, Benjamin. So you, you can see here his perspective is different. He's, he's not let any of that change him. He seems to get stronger through the years in his relationship to God. And back to David, David's song puts God in the present, active in our lives and blessed, that we can be blessed in it. So I want to take a look for a moment. This uh, may take a moment or two, verse 21 and following, because uh, if you know the life of David, you might run into a little bit of a difficulty here. It says, The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. Okay, According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept my ways uh kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him. I have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And then to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. And one thing I want to say about this is, to keep in mind, this is, once again, this is not David just applauding himself. The focus of this psalm is on God. Okay? He's not applauding just his own righteousness. What he's trying to do is point out something about God. But how do we deal with this idea? David seems to be saying here that I'm above reproach in every way. So how do you account for that? Let's, let's talk about some options. You can decide where you land on this. But the first uh, option I see here is to understand this psalm as having been written before the sins, but now being sung. See, there's a lot of people that fall into this camp, and one of the reasons for that is because of verse 1. Look back at verse 1 with me. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hands of Saul. So that when could suggest that he sung this way back when uh, he becomes king, and so this precludes any of his sins. Okay, so maybe he's written this psalm then, and he's now singing it because we have to. We have the sense of when it comes in his life is at the at the end of his life, and so maybe he's singing this song that he's written earlier on when all of that was true about him. That's one option. Number two is we could understand this psalm as a poetic statement of the direction of David's life, okay? So the direction of his life is that he wants to obey God, that he wants to be uh, blameless in the sight of God. And so uh, you remember the difference between poetic and prosaic? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Poetic is where we use language not in exact scientific accuracy, but uh, to rep- as representative language, okay? That's one way that this could be. After all, it is a psalm. And in other places, it's used that way. Prosaic language is more like straightforward prose. It's not written in poetry. The words mean exactly what they mean. They're not allusions to something else. Uh, and so that's one way it could be taken. A third way that we can understand this is to understand this psalm as coming from the viewpoint of God's forgiveness. Remember, he says that I will 
cast your sin into the sea of forgetfulness. And he says, I'll not hold your sins against you. I'll not remember them anymore. And God has been, uh, God has been faithful to forgive. And David's prayer in Psalm 51 was, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be white as snow. Those things cleansed away. And so he could be looking at it from that perspective. If he's written this later in life, to understand this psalm is coming from the viewpoint of God's forgiveness. And the fourth thing, possibility, is to understand this psalm as telling a part of the story to make a different point, okay? That his uh, purpose here is not to get entangled in all of those details. His purpose here is to make another kind of point, that God is faithful to those who will be blameless. And so he's not spending time. He's not trying to deflect that he's done those things. He's saying, this is the, this is the course of my life, and that when you're this way, God will bless you. So he's not necessarily getting uh, involved in those other things. So uh, in defense of this view, you realize not every sermon can say everything that there needs to be said on a subject. Not every Christian song can emphasize every truth. Some songs are about grace. Some songs are about justice. Are you with me? And it doesn't always have every element, but hopefully together in balance, a balance can be struck. The Bible hasn't neglected to tell us this part of the story. We're getting the psalm, but we've gotten it after in, in chapter 11, the Bathsheba and Uriah incident. And we're getting it before the incident in which he counts the fighting troops. So the Bible hasn't neglected to tell us this. It's that from David's perspective, he's trying to preach some kind of sermon, it seems to me. And so he doesn't have to include every aspect of this. We will always remember the terrible thing that David's done. His righteousness does not justify his sin, but God has forgiven him and restored him to righteousness. So I'd like you to consider another verse that's kind of like that. Um, And this is in support of number four. I don't know which direction I land on here, but uh, I think that probably David's trying to make another point and not trying to focus upon that. First uh, Kings chapter 14, verse 8. I, this is God speaking through a prophet to, I believe, Jeroboam here. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all of his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. Do you hear that? This is God speaking. He doesn't mention the hairy details of David's failure. He says to Jeroboam, for the sake of a point, David was faithful to me. Okay, So I don't think that it's necessary. Then there's another verse in the next chapter if you need balance for it. For David has done what is right in the eyes of the Lord and has not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. And so we have a little bit later on another example of where all the hairy details or at least part of it is included in that. And so it seems to me that the point that David is making in this portion of the psalm, um, no matter when he wrote it, is that the Lord rewards those who seek to obey him. And so if you read it in light of verses 26 through 30 here, you see that the emphasis is not all about David, it's about the Lord. And so he's not focusing upon his sin, he's focusing upon the righteousness of God. And I think we have to recognize that Bathsheba and Uriah and the numbering of the fighting troops were not the only sins David ever committed. Right? I mean, we'd have to think that probably he's done some other things. I mean, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In some ways, 
he may have, as a young person, talked back to his parents or had a bad attitude or lusted over a married woman or something. We have to assume that David would have done. And so these are not absolute statements, but a statement of the direction of his life. And we know that God forgives. Okay, God's forgiveness, God forgives the repentant. God blesses the obedient. As you can see from David, being blessed doesn't mean trouble-free. It just means that he fills our lives and he makes our lives fulfill his purpose. And the extent of blessing comes to us completely in the resurrection. So is the goodness of God a thing of your past or is it a present reality? I think this psalm challenges us with that. Don't let all of God's good blessings be just in the past. You know what I mean? He's good today, and we need to reflect upon it. Finally, I think uh, we can come to this last one. Anybody want to guess what it is? God will be good. (laughs) Was good, is good, will be good. Okay, This is uh, mostly in verses 49 through 51. And I'd like you to notice that this psalm, which uh, here in verse 51 ends with the future, it ends in the future, Verse 51 says this, uh, he gives his king victories, that's present. He shows his unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So now it's this is perpetuated. It's something that began now, but carries into the future. And other languages have better ways of doing that. I think English is a little bit... Um, deprived in that category, that we have to describe it with lots of words. In other languages, they have verbs that actually do that on its own. That It just says it began now, but it carries on indefinitely. This it uh, is God's goodness, and it will carry on in the future. In verse 51, he uh, rejoices in the continuation of God's faithfulness even after he's gone. There's a reason for this which goes back to the promise of a perpetual king, the son of David. He knows that. We're, we're going to talk in Second Samuel 7 next week and maybe a little bit of the transition into Solomon's reign uh, next time as well. But the, one of the main themes of the Old Testament is sometimes overlooked is God's promise to David of a son who will sit upon the throne perpetually. And so that when Jesus comes, one of the things that's continually called out about him as a messianic leader is son of David. Remember Bartimaeus cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. There was a recognition that he was a descendant of the line of David, and if he hadn't been, he was not gonna be he's not the Messiah. Well, because he was, that at least includes him as a possibility, and there's many other reasons that we should understand that he is the Messiah. So um, the emphasis is like that of Revelation chapter one, verse eight in this psalm. You remember what it says there? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who, what's the order there? What's the tense order? No, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. And the reason the is is so important is that in that moment, God is encouraging, Christ specifically is encouraging the church that's going through terrible times that he is with them. The same God of yesterday is with you today. The order is there for us. Like We're anticipating a good tomorrow, aren't we, in Jesus. 
not necessarily tomorrow, tomorrow. Hope tomorrow's great for you. But beyond that, there's a great future ahead of us in Christ. And it's not about going to heaven only. There's a new heavens and a new earth in which all of this is recreated. And God gets to sit on the throne. Jesus gets to sit on the throne and rule forever and ever. And so sometimes we think, like, it's hard to relate to what heaven will be like. Yes, but we know what earth is kind of like. We can make a mental jump to having some kind of transcorporal bodies that are similar to this. But in a righteous world, that is hard to imagine. <laughs> God is good, and he, he will show himself good. The one who is and was and is to come, the emphasis is present but continues on forever. Notice that David is recognizing a future beyond his own life. I think that's really important to this. Remember in Jesus' day that there were different categories of sects within Judaism. Jewish sects. Let's make sure we get that word heard right. <laughs> S-E-C-T. If it didn't come out clear enough. So, S. Put an S on the end to make it plural. Uh, what, are, what are the ones that are out there? Sadducees. Pharisees, the Essenes, and there's another one that's kind of part of the probably Pharisees, the Zealots. Okay, and The Zealots were kind of political. They wanted to see the kingdom restored in a political way, and so they were willing to take knives and swords and go do it. And uh, Jesus had one of those on his squad, didn't he? Simon the Zealot. And then the Pharisees, Paul was a Pharisee. They're like the fundamentalist Christians. Okay? We believe in taking the Bible literally, and they're going to take it literally, and they're going to do whatever the the Word says as best they can. And they're even going to establish fence post laws so that they don't break a real law, okay? And they believe in the resurrection. Remember when Paul gets arrested, and he goes before the Sanhedrin, and he says, well, I'm a Pharisee like some of you, and oh, he split the Supreme Court, and they argued with each other because some were Pharisees and some were Sadducees. And I believe in the resurrection. And, oh, the Sadducees were mad because they don't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in an afterlife. And so they were troubled by that. And some people read in the Old Testament there's no resurrection. David talks about it, doesn't he? They prophesy about life after death. And he also recognizes the purpose of God goes on beyond his life in this life. And uh, he's, he's recognizing the perpetual goodness of God. Notice, he gives his great king, his king, great victories, and he shows unfailing kindness. You know what the word is there? Anybody want to guess? Hesed. It's the covenant loyalty of a greater to a lesser. One who pities and shows kindness and faithfulness, despite the fact that the one who's lesser is unworthy. Don't be offended if I call you lesser than God. That's just a tryst with reality, isn't it? <laughs> to recognize that's true of us. God is greater than us, and he's more important than us. And we look to him, and he's shown kindness to us. What is man that you're mindful of him? The psalmist writes. So I'd like you to notice here, David is recognizing a future beyond his own life, a future that matters and that will go on and on. And even his intention 
is to go on praising. Notice uh, verse, verse 50 says, Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He's, he's declaring intention. This is one of the things that we have as people who remember our past, who live in a present, and who can purpose for the future, is that we can, we can determine, we can resolve what we will do. Right? I will praise you. I will praise you. I will praise you for your unfailing kindness. I asked, uh, t- I asked tonight, are you looking forward to a future with God? Like, really, I know you might think, well, I'm not looking, to get, I'm not looking forward to getting older. That has its challenges, but doesn't it have its rewards too? So we look forward to being with Him. Think about the future with God, a future that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. And, Guaranteed by his resurrection, a future which does away with sin and suffering and where there's joy forevermore. See, because God will be good, and so we ought to let him be praised. And we ought to praise him in advance because we're people of faith, right? I think Paul uh, says, we walk by faith and not by sight, Second Corinthians chapter 4. The things which we see are temporal, the things which are unseen are permanent. We walk by faith and not by sight. We're looking forward with eyes of faith to that which is not yet. And we can anticipate that and praise him with that kind of faith. seems to me the only time that we stop worshiping is when we've lost perspective or have grown distant. And those are, those are two things which really go hand in hand. If we're, we're not worshiping like we used to, I think we lost perspective on who God is. Is that fair? And I think we've also maybe let some distance grow between us and him. And those two things go hand in hand. If you get distant in your relationship with God, you will lose perspective on reality, on life, on what's important, on what's big and what's significant and what's not. Right? Like if you're looking to Jesus, Peter's looking to Jesus, the size of the waves don't matter. But he starts looking at the size of the wave, and he sinks, and he loses perspective. And often what we do is we get big problems, little God, in our perspective lens. Instead, we should look to him. But David's a man who who was unjustly chased from his home. Remember when he just wanted a drink from that refreshing well that he knew so long ago? He's forced to live a fugitive life among foreigners. For a time, he even lived among the Philistines. He, he involved himself in sin, which had consequences. He experienced the judgment of God. He experienced internal turmoil in his home. He was forced from his throne by a son and, a, and the nation who chose Absalom over him. He lost three sons during his lifetime. His daughter was raped by one of, one of her brothers. And yet, in his dying days, he was a worshiper. Yeah, like we, I think sometimes we think in psychological man takes over rather than spiritual man. That those things have to jade us. Those things have to send us in a direction in life. And I would suggest to you, no, they don't. That if you're a worshiper, you can overcome those things. David could overcome that. He knew God. And he never forgot what God had done for him. 
You see, we can focus on the troubles, and everyone has them, but the wisdom that comes from this psalm, from David, from David who's been down the road, is that God must be praised, and he's worthy of praise at every stage in life. When he's young, when he's in middle age, when he's old, he's worthy of it. Does your faith support that kind of worship, or is it just small adolescent faith? Like, let the zealous teenagers praise him. I'm too old and my bones are too weary for this. Or have you seen enough of the faithfulness of God that you can't help but praise him? Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for your attention tonight. Father, thank you for showing your kindness to us. We could have lived all of our lives and and not known personal kindnesses that you've shown to each one of us. You let the you let the general kindnesses flow over us, the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and the rain in its season is a blessing. The sun is a blessing, and all of the general blessings that you give to us as people, but you've shown us some personal kindnesses, and we think about them right now. We think about how you you wooed us when we weren't interested in you at all. You loved us enough to search out a rebellious and disinterested party to make them your child, your son or daughter. You've healed us. Many in this room have experienced physical healing and spiritual healing and emotional healing. And on all those levels have known you to be a great God. Some here have lived on the brink of destitution. You came through just in time. You were Jehovah Jireh. And they know of a personal moment when that realization set in upon them. And God, you've been good to us so many times. Help us, Lord, to recount those and to turn it into worship. We might live a life that recognizes you were good, you are good, you will be good, and to praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.